Well, the title of the message this morning is Doctrines That Shook the World, Soli Deo Gloria. Doctrines That Shook the World, Soli Deo Gloria. What I want to do this morning before we jump into our text uh, is I want to give you some Reformation context for the doctrine which in Latin we refer to as soli deo gloria, or in English, to God alone be glory. We spent the last four weeks, and this will be our concluding message this morning, studying the five solas, or the five alones. That's what sola means. It means alone, or solely, or exclusive, singularly. Those five solas of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. These five doctrines, these five alones, sum up the theological commitments of the reformers. And I would submit to you that they should sum up our theological commitments today. One of the themes that came out of the Protestant Reformation uh, was the theme semper reformanda. It means always reforming. And that did not just ring true during the days of the Protestant Reformation, but it also rings true for us today. Because just as in the Protestant Reformation, they needed to be always reforming, the church needed to be always reforming itself Back to the Word of God, reforming to the Word of God, because we have a tendency to gravitate away from the Word of God. We need to be reforming back to it. We need to be doing that today as a local church, but we also need to be doing that today as individuals. Semper reformanda, always reforming our lives to the authority and the sufficiency of God's revealed Word to us. When the Reformers spoke about sola scriptura, or or Scripture alone, They were concerned with the authority of God's word. Luther and many others contended that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority, not the Pope, not the church, not the traditions of the church, not church councils, and still less our own personal intimations or subjective feelings. Those are not the places that we look to be the final court of appeals as it pertains to matters of truth. We appeal to Scripture alone. These sources are limited in their authority. They can sometimes be useful and sometimes have a place, but Scripture and Scripture alone is always ultimate. Therefore, if any of these other authorities, lowercase a, differs from Scripture, then those lowercase a authorities are to be judged by the Bible and thus rejected. This is why it's so important that the Reformers referred to sola scriptura, the first of the solas, as being the formal principle of the Reformation, meaning that it gives form or substance to everything else. You see, it was their intention, the Reformers' intention, in affirming Scripture alone to give glory to God alone. When the Reformers spoke about sola gratia, grace alone, they did so insisting that sinners have absolutely no claim upon God. God owes us nothing but punishment for our sins. And if God chooses to save some, which by his grace he does, he saves them in spite of their sins and only because it pleases him to do so. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 115.3 that our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. God does not owe us anything. We do not deserve anything with the exception of just punishment for our cosmic treason. The fact that God is gracious and merciful, kind and benevolent is a magnificent display of his grace, undeserved by us. Grace, by definition, is receiving something that is not owed, something that is not due to us. And so, in in affirming that salvation is by grace alone, the reformers were intending to give glory to God alone. When the reformers spoke about sola fide, or faith alone, they were concerned about the purity of the gospel. They affirmed that the believer is justified by faith, entirely apart from any works that he or she might do. Paul tells us in Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 28, that we are justified apart from 
works of the law. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're justified by faith alone, not faith plus our works, not faith plus our merit, not faith plus our good deeds, faith plus nothing. Faith alone. You see, the doctrine of justification of faith alone was the central issue of the Protestant Reformation. It was the doctrine around which the soul is orbited, so to speak. You see, the question the Reformers were trying to answer with exacting biblical precision was this question. How? How is it that sinners can be made right with a holy God? How is that so? In other words, if God, because of our sin, is against us, how is it then that God can be made to be for us? The answer By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That is the answer to the question, how can a sinful person be made right with God? And that is why the issue or the doctrine of justification, being made right with God by means of faith alone, was such a critical, pinnacle issue and doctrine of the Protestant Reformation. The theological battle that Luther and the other reformers fought over the issue of justification by faith uh, was, was so central because a lot of times we use similar vocabulary. The Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church uses similar vocabulary, but with different definitions. Or we're not exclusive enough. In other words... What Luther began to see in the Protestant Reformation and what has even been re-emphasized in in our latter days is that the issue wasn't that salvation, or justification rather, is by faith alone. The issue was with the alone. The issue was with the soul apart of justification by faith. The Roman Catholic Church would say that a person is justified by faith. They just leave out the alone. It's justification by faith plus your merits, plus your work, plus your accomplishment, plus you drawing on you in some way, shape, or form. You see, the issue that Luther and the Reformers fought against was the alone, the alone in sola fide. The Roman Catholic view is that a person is justified by faith plus works. We talked last week, or two weeks rather ago, uh, about this doctrine of infused righteousness. Uh, that, that, that you have some semblance of righteousness, and by your works, extra grace and extra righteousness is just kind of infused in you. Whereas the Protestant view, what we would hold to unashamedly, a hill that I'm willing to die on, friends, is that of justification by faith, by imputed righteousness. In other words, we are born absolutely bankrupt, physically alive, spiritually dead. If we are to have new life, we must, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 7, be born again. And the way that takes place is not by infusing a little bit of grace here and there based on what I do and how I do. I'm bankrupt. My spiritual account is empty. I need the the righteousness of Christ, which is alien to me. It's foreign to me. It's intrinsic to him, but it's foreign to me. And I need his righteousness imputed to my account, credited to my otherwise bankrupt account. And friends, that is not just a distinction of, of, of minimal or of mere semantics. Infused righteousness versus imputed righteousness, justification by faith versus justification by faith alone is a critical, with a capital C, issue. It's the issue of eternity in hell versus the the issue of eternity in heaven. A person's salvation hangs in the balance of justification and what we believe to be true about it in insisting that justification is by faith in Christ alone, the reformers were intending to ascribe glory to God alone. When the reformers spoke about solus Christus, that's where we were last week, Christ alone, they were saying that salvation has been achieved for us by Jesus Christ and Him alone, that it has been entirely accomplished outside of us, apart from anything that we have done or might do. 
Christ's death on the cross made perfect atonement for our sins, and we cannot contribute to that atonement in the slightest. We receive it. We don't contribute to it. We don't have anything to contribute to it other than our sin. That's the great exchange that we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sinless, perfect, spotless, blameless, the Lamb of God, to hang upon Calvary's cross that he might become sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. He exchanged his righteousness for my sin, the guiltless for the guilty. In salvation, Christ's righteousness is applied to the believer by the Spirit, and this is the sole ground of our justification. Our righteousness does not enter into our being made right with God in any way. Again, we have no righteousness. All of our even most righteous deeds are but filthy rags. When the Reformers spoke about Christ alone, they did so in order to give glory to God alone. Now, You may have noticed that when I started each of these thoughts here, I said when the reformers spoke of sola scriptura or sola gratia or sola fide or sola Christus, what you need to know is that the reformers did not speak of these doctrines in those terms. The reformers didn't speak explicitly of the five solas. They were summarized later. But here's what you can be absolutely sure of without a doubt. The magnification of scripture, the magnification of grace, the magnification of faith and Christ and God's glory and these alone suffused their theology and their ethics, their worship and their piety. Scripture alone and no mere human word is our ultimate standard of authority. Grace alone and not any human contribution saves us. Faith alone and no other human action is the instrument by which we are saved in Christ alone and no other redeemer is the mediator of our salvation. You will find those themes running absolutely through the Reformers' theology, though they did not necessarily speak about the solas as we speak of them today. Those were summarized later or after the fact as we look back on the theological commitments of the reformers. And brothers and sisters, all of these solas lead to the last one, which is where we are this morning. To God alone be the glory, or soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria has been referred to as the glue that holds all of the other solas together. You see the first four solas, Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, and Sola Solus Christus, they answered the how question. Those first four solas answered the how question. Remember, the men and women who fought the doctrinal battle of the Protestant Reformation were seeking to answer the question, how can sinners be made right with God? If God is against us, how can it be that he can be made to be for us? Well, the solas answer that question. The first four do, according to the authority of Scripture, the final authoritative court of appeals. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the final sola, soli deo gloria, answers the why question. Soli deo gloria answers the why question. In other words, why does God save sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? The answer, for his glory alone. For his glory alone. Here was the issue in the Roman Catholic Church, and it is still the issue today. Is that the Roman Catholic Church, friends, and some of you I know have come out of a Roman Catholic background or upbringing. But the Roman Catholic Church was built upon a, a, a sacramental system. They had developed an entire sacramental system by which the people could cooperate with grace in order to contribute in some way to their justification or to contribute in some way to their being made right with God. And if this is the case, if a person, if you or I or any other person can can acquire for ourselves grace through the sacraments of baptism or the Eucharist or by any other means then you or I or the church or the pope or patron saints or Mary or the priest have at least in part 
something to glory about in justification. If anyone else plays a role, if anyone else has a part, save God alone through the mediator of the Son alone, then all glory does not belong to God alone. You catch that? The Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. We, we would observe two. We're going to observe one here this morning, uh, communion, and baptism would be the second. But there are seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church. But the fundamental difference, uh, not just in the number of the sacraments, but the fundamental difference is in their efficacy. In other words, what do those sacraments do? What do those sacraments accomplish? What are those sacraments effective for? You see, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the sacraments do what they are designed to do, ex opera operato, means by working of the works. just means that when, when you observe one of the sacraments, that, that, it, that it is effectious in doing for you or accomplishing for you what it was designed to do. Simply, Performing the sacrament causes it to operate and to perform as it was designed to perform. And so you ask yourself the question, well, what was it in Catholic theology that the sacraments were designed to do? Or what were they perform, uh, how do they perform in such the way that they were designed to perform? And that is that they were designed to confer upon the taker or the recipient some form of grace. That there was some form of grace infused in those that, that the receiver would get by means of the sacrament. Those Roman Catholic sacraments are baptism, confirmation, matrimony or marriage, extreme unction, kind of at the end of your life there, holy orders or, or a, a sacrament that would take place for someone who was ordained to some special a place in ministry. And then there were two others that are believed to give the most assistance, at least in this world. And one is penance, and the other is the Lord's Supper. But you just need to know where, where we would look at this table right here, and we would look at these elements of, of juice and cracker as being merely representative of the gospel. This, all this is, friends, is a visual picture. This is a representation of the gospel. Just like my wedding ring is a representation of my marriage, it is a picture of the vows that I have made. So communion serves as a picture of Christ's blood that he willingly poured out for us. And Christ's body, the bread, that he, he was broken for us, his body broken for us. But we would not say that there is grace in this that is infused to you once you take it. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, not do this that you would get more righteousness. Or any other sacrament for that matter. Not only is the Roman Catholic Church built upon a sacramental system, but it's also built upon a sacerdotal system. Now, track with me here. I, I, my intention is not to just use a bunch of big words, but I, I want you to understand. You've got to have the framework for why the solas were even Why did we fight for these things? Why did we contend for these doctrinal issues? It's of no minor significance. The significance is massive. So we have this whole sacramental system. All, all, all these sacraments. The Roman Catholic Church would say infuses you with some form of grace. But we have this sacerdotal system as well. Sacerdotal simply refers to the doctrine or the system of ascribing spiritual or supernatural powers to priests or other religious authorities. In other words, we look to the people who wear the garb. We look to the people who wear the dress, who wear the holy clothes and do the holy things and say the holy things and sit on the holy chair in the holy house as, as somehow being more holy and therefore, they are able, able to help us, lowly ones, get to the end. The Roman Catholic Church has set up a system of mediators between God and man. There are pray, prayers to the patron saints, prayers beseeching the Pope and other priests, prayers offered to Mary. The problem 
is that to do so, which is found nowhere in your Bible, friends, from cover to cover, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you won't find it in your Bible. To do so sets up those individuals to be co-mediators of grace with Christ. Now, here's what I mean by that. Paul tells us that there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. There are not multiple mediators. Mary is not a mediator. The priests are not mediators. The Pope is not a mediator. No saints are mediating on our behalf. There is one mediator, and his name is Jesus. We come to him, and through him only. We're not to look to an individual to perform an office that was given only to Jesus Christ to perform and to execute. To do so is to give glory. That's why it's a big issue. To do so is to give glory in some manner to men or women for that matter for your salvation. There's one person that can help you, friends. Jesus. Nobody else can help you. Nobody else can save you. No one else can, can contribute anything to your salvation. Now, I am not in any way saying that we aren't the recipients of the blessings of others who come alongside us and encourage us or challenge us or share the gospel with us or hold us accountable or point us to Jesus in some way. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying when it comes to matters of salvation, no one can help you save Jesus Christ alone. It's critically important. Critically important. In the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, Mary is what we would refer to as a co-mediatrix. It means that she has some sort of intercessory role as a mediator in the salvific redemption by her son Jesus Christ that in some way bestows grace through her. If it sounds confusing, it's because it is. I mean, if you, and, and, and here's what I, I, I understand, know, hear my, my heart. My, my, my desire is not to, let me be real careful how I say this. My, my desire is to uphold the truth, whatever the cost, to be uncompromising, to be unbending when it comes to, to biblical doctrine, to matters of truth. But I'm not just trying to poo-poo on some other church. If it were any other church, if it were any other religious system, and there are many others, all we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church because we're talking about the Protestant Reformation. It's not the only religious system that ascribes to a doctrine and a theology that you won't find in your Bible. I'm not just trying to, uh, to intentionally make fun of, poke holes in, make light, but I am, un- I am unashamedly trying to uphold the truth. If you grew up Catholic, you're undoubtedly familiar with the intercessory prayer to Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace. Our Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Sounds good so far, Right? Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. You have just jumped off the deep end. You see, the whole idea here is that Mary is a co-mediatrix. That that she stands beside her son... In the conferring of grace. And so at the last hour of life, when when everything is said and done, and I'm getting ready to breathe life's final breath, I I petition her that that if she can some way can can wring out or can can squeeze out any, any additional grace that might be helpful for me so that if I go to purgatory, I have to spend less time there than more time there, then help me, step in for me, Mary, in this final moment. This is reality, folks. This is reality. That's why the reformers were so passionate about the doctrinal issues that they contended for. 
Because they're, they're, they're not matters of secondary or tertiary importance. They're matters of fundamental pinnacle importance. They're first things issues. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between salvation and no salvation. It's the difference in righteousness and no righteousness. It's the, it's the, 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 the difference between forgiveness and condemnation. With a little bit of context, and much more could be said about uh, the issues of, the, the, the doctrinal issues that the reformers contended for, let's, let's turn our attention now a little bit to this fifth sola. Soli Deo Gloria, again, which, which is the, the doctrine that the other four solas revolve around, because they all answer the why question. Why? Why is Scripture alone our final authority? Why is grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone God's way of salvation? Because God's glory alone is God's greatest passion. Number one, if you're taking notes here, is this. God does everything he does for his glory. God does everything he does for his glory. You say, well, what is glory? We need to define terms here, okay? God's glory is to be understood essentially as one of his divine attributes, but moreover, as an attribute that eminently reflects and reveals the perfection of all of his attributes. Another way to say that is is God's glory is the sum total. God's glory is the sum total of all of his attributes. It's who he is. It's his divine essence. God is glorious. God is the only being in all of existence who can be said to possess inherent glory. Another way of saying that is glory is intrinsic to God. We don't give it to him. It is his by virtue of who he is. He did not become glorious when he created the world. God's act of sovereign creation was rather an expression of his glory. It was his glory overflowing, bubbling forth. God was glorious before any being was created to worship him. If no one ever gave God praise, he would still be just as glorious as he is. His glory is his being. It's it's simply the sum of who he is and what he is, regardless of what we do or do not do in recognition of it. You need to know that, friends. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, is sometimes used figuratively to, to refer to that which is heavy or dense or weighty. When we speak of the weight of a person, we're speaking about someone who's honorable or worthy or impressive. When we speak about kavod, glory, we're talking about reputation, majesty. God is weighty. We honor and glorify him by by giving appropriate respect and attention and obedience and recognition to his glory. But you need to understand, if not a single breath ever praised the Lord, God would be no glorious than he has always been from before the foundation of the world. It's who he is. It's who he is. And he's passionate about it too, by the way. God is passionate about his glory. God declares of himself, I am the Lord, that is my name, I give my glory to no other nor my praise to carved idols, Isaiah 42, 8. What this text hammers home to us is the centrality of God in his own affections. God is central. God is pinnacle. God sits on the throne of his own affections. And you say, how arrogant is that? How arrogant is it of God to to sit on the throne of his own affections? And friends, I would remind you, if God sat anywhere other than on the throne of his own affections, he would be guilty of being an idolater. And he would be less than God and not worthy of our praise and worship. God is passionate for his glory. The most passionate heart for the glorification of God is God's own heart. The ultimate goal of God is to uphold and to display the glory of his name. God glorifies himself through scripture. 
God glorifies himself in his plan for all history. God glorifies himself in his decree of, of election. We'll talk about that more in a minute. God glorifies himself through the work of creation. God glorifies himself through, through his providence. That's sustaining and ruling and superintending his handiwork. And God glorifies himself through his work of redemption. Everything God does is done for his glory without exception, period. It's interesting, as we look to the Bible, we see these glory names ascribed to God. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament uses glory as a name for God. We see in 1 Samuel 15, the glory of Israel is a title given to God. Psalm 24, the king of glory. Psalm 29, the God of glory. Paul picks up this theme in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll turn there in a few minutes. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, his first letter, calls God the Lord of glory. 1 Peter chapter 4 refers to God as the spirit of glory. 2 Peter chapter 1 refers to God as majestic glory, like capital M, that is his name. It's a title. Majestic glory is his name. God's glory, I would submit to you, is the overarching theme of the entire Bible. And you might say, now wait a second, I thought redemption was, was the overarching theme of the entire Bible. I would say that it is God's glory that fuels or motivates redemption as being a theme through the Bible. God's glory is the pinnacle theme, I would submit, that you see running through Scripture. God's glory and his love for, his passion for, his glory. Uh, let me give you just a handful of those texts. God is jealous and he will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, I give my glory to no other. Isaiah chapter 43 tells us that God created us for his glory. Isaiah says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Jesus, which his return is the, is the next act that we are waiting for in God's redemptive drama, the return of Christ back into this world, to take his bride to be with him. Jesus is returning for the glory of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, talking about the lost, and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. Only the one who is glorious, friends, is worthy of being marveled at. He's coming to be marveled at among all who have believed. But he's coming to be glorified in his saints. Habakkuk chapter 2 tells us that it's God's plan that the earth would be filled with his glory. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters do the seas. In the new Jerusalem, in eternity future, the glory of God will replace the sun, Revelation 21 tells us. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb, blazing glory. God will receive glory forever, friends. One of my favorite passages in, in all the Bible, and it's hard for me to nail down one. If you were to ask me what's your favorite passage, you're going to see my eyeballs begin to roll. But one of my favorites is this, Romans 11, 33 through 36. Paul breaks out in spontaneous doxology after considering God's redemptive plan, his plan of salvation. And, and Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his past beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Answer, no one. And Paul concludes by saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. What's the last word? Forever. Forever. God will receive glory forever. 
Those of you that have an interest in classical music are probably aware that a number of composers affixed this idea, soli deo gloria, uh, glory to God alone, to their work. Perhaps chief among them was Johann Sebastian Bach. History recounts that when Johann sat down to compose a new piece of music, before even writing a single note, he would write the letters J.J. at the top, Latin for Jesus help. And then he would bow his head and pray, Jesus, help me to show your glory through the music I write. May it bring you joy, even as it brings joy to your people. You see, without Jesus' help, Johann knew that he'd never be able to complete the task. And with that, the music began to pour forth from his soul onto the page. And when he was finally satisfied with his work, Johann would write the initials S-D-G at the bottom of the page. Solely, they are gloria. To God alone be the glory. Johann wrote for the glory of God alone, and he hoped that when his music was played, it would point toward God. God does everything he does for his glory. Now, let's look at a text for a few minutes together. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which is actually one sentence in the original Koine Greek, by the way. It's punctuated in your Bible. 242 words, I believe, in the English, 202 words in the Greek, one continuous sentence, one continuous thought from Paul. Let's look at it in its entirety. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, pins the following words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. I want to make just three points. We're we're more than halfway done here. Take, take, Take a breath. I want to make just three brief points here from, from this text, from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And what I want to do primarily is I want to show you that every single one of the five solas are included in this text. Every single one of the solas are included here. Number two on your outline, if you're taking notes, I hope you are, is this. God alone gets glory for choosing sinners. God alone gets glory for choosing sinners. That's verses 3 through 6. Look back at your Bible there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Praise God, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, thank God that he did. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with, with, with which, rather, he blessed us in the beloved. 
Friends, God alone gets the glory for choosing sinners. Here we see, in these couple of verses, sola gratia. You see, it was God's grace alone, for his glory alone, that he chose you and I if we know him savingly before the foundation of the world. That is, again, that he chose us irrespective of anything that we had done. If you know Jesus sitting here this morning, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law, apart from any of your own merit, if you know Jesus in that way, it's because before the foundation of the world, he set his affections on you. And that needs to fall under the category or under the umbrella of God does everything he does for his glory. Because at the end of the day, though we are beneficiaries of a wonderful salvation, your salvation is not primarily about you. And it's not primarily about me. Your redemption, your salvation, the fact that you know Jesus, though you are the beneficiary of innumerable blessings. You've been seated in the heavenlies, co-heirs with Christ, adopted, redeemed, ransomed, justified. We could go on and on and on. It's primarily to set the glory of God on display. It's primarily about God's glory. But here... Here in these verses, 3 through 6, we see the doctrine of sola gratia. We see that that it is God's grace alone. Because it was before we were ever created. Before we were ever knit together in our mother's womb. Before we were fashioned there in the deeps. He predestined us. He chose us. He called us in eternity past. Sola gratia. Completely by grace completely by his grace. God alone gets the glory for choosing sinners. Write this down, number three. God alone gets the glory for redeeming sinners. Look back at your Bible for just a second, verses 7 through 13. In him we have redemption through his blood, speaking about Jesus, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love words like that in the Bible, by the way. He didn't just give us grace. He lavished it upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, all kinds of spiritual blessings, some of which we are already the recipients of, some of which we will recognize and be the recipients of when we step across the threshold of eternity, when our salvation is finally brought to its ultimate conclusion. An inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Hear hear that sound there? In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, we see sola gratia here. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. There it is. Sola gratia, right there. By grace alone. By the way, I would submit to you that the glory of God is most clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God? Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, speaking about Jesus, tells us that he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the very word of his power. All glory be to God. Sola gratia, again, there in verse 7. Look at verse 12. We see solus Christus and soli Deo gloria. Paul writes, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, there's faith, To hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There's soli deo gloria. Look at verse 13. We see sola scriptura, sola fide. In him, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, that's sola scriptura. That's the revealed word of God. 
2 Timothy 3.16, God breathed, given to us, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. The word believed there in your Bible is the Greek word pistis. It's the Greek word for faith. When you had faith in him, when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, all the solas appear right here in this pericope of text, in this section of the Bible. God alone gets glory for choosing sinners. God alone gets glory for redeeming sinners. And God alone gets glory, number four here, for sanctifying and glorifying sinners. You say, Eric, you only gave me one spot. We'll figure out how to put two things in there. Sanctifying and glorifying. God alone gets the glory for sanctifying and glorifying sinners. Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? That's future. We've we've acquired a down payment of it now. But until we acquire the full possession of it to the praise of his glory. God alone gets glory for sanctifying us, for changing us, for causing us to bear more resemblance to Christ after we come to know him savingly. And then in the hour of our glorification, you don't need Mary then. Why? Because if you know Jesus, you stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, the only mediator between God and men. And his righteousness is more than enough. It is more than enough. Let me say just a few things here in closing this morning about the fact that we were made, this is your last point, to be glory reflectors. You were not made to be a glory manufacturer. You were made to be a glory reflector. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul's writing here, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, were being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's interesting, the word uh, beholding there in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's the Greek word katoptridzomai. Say that five times fast. It's a verb, and it has the idea of reflecting or mirroring. So we could say, and we with, all, with, with unveiled face, mirroring the glory of the Lord or reflecting the glory of the Lord. You see, we've been made, friends, if you know Christ, to be a mirror of God's glory, holiness, and righteousness, to reflect it back to him. Not so we may benefit, though there are immeasurable blessings and benefits of being found in Christ, but so that Jesus Christ, so that God the Father would be glorified as they should and ought to be. John Piper asked this question. He says, what does it mean to glorify God? And then he answers, he says, well, it certainly does not mean to make him more glorious. It simply means to acknowledge his glory and to value it above all things, to make it known, to mirror it, to radiate it. Spurgeon follows right on the heels here, and he says, this, friends, is perhaps one of the hardest struggles of the Christian life to learn this sentence. Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. To your name be the glory. We have a tendency to want to absorb instead of reflect. We were made to reflect. The reformers and those who lived just past them understood this truth, and so they wrote two enduring catechisms. One is the Heidelberg Catechism, and the other is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me, let me share with you as we land the plane here. We're, we're done. You can close your Bible, by the way. That way I just have your full attention. The Heidelberg Catechism, published in 1562, begins with this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And here is the answer that it gives, and I would submit to you that it is thoroughly biblical. That I am not my own. But I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He 
has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is the answer to the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the summarized answer, Jesus. Jesus. Here's the Westminster Confession of Faith, published in 1647, asks this question, probably more familiar to you. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Notice how the question is asked in the singular, what is the chief end? doesn't ask, what are the chief ends? And the answer is twofold because they go together. They're inseparable. The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When you find the most joy and satisfaction in God, That is what brings him the most glory. So let me leave you with this question this morning. How satisfied are you in him? How satisfied in God are you? He's most glorified in you when you and I are most satisfied in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the fact that it challenges us. Thank you for the fact that it reveals truth. Your word does not just contain truth. Your word is truth from beginning to end. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It is, it is the only and the final court of appeals for all matters of doctrine and truth. In it, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness this side of eternity. And in it, you clearly tell us that if we are to be made right with a holy God, If sinners are to be made right with God, if God is against us, how can it be that God is made to be for us? Your word declares that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you alone might receive all of the honor, all of the glory, and all of the praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.